The youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, on a chair somewhere within reach. Definitely look around and grab one and turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. And as you're turning there, uh, just welcome to you all. It's good to be back with you. To our regulars and uh, our members, appreciate the encouragement and your forbearance allowing my family to be gone for a time this summer for a little time of refreshment. Uh, But it's always good to come back and be with the family of Christ here at Cornerstone. Uh, If you're just visiting or brand new, Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. Uh, it's a joy to have you. Uh, here at Cornerstone, we, we do our best to take the Bible seriously as the Spirit of God has breathed out his 66 books of the Bible, all of it inspired and inerrant. We want to do what we can to uh, sit under the preaching of the Word and by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit, proclaim the Word of God. Maybe you've heard of the story that was made into a film, a couple of films, Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, Probably the more well-known is the 1962 film, Mutiny on the Bounty, with Marlon Brando. The film was made on location where the actual events happened in French Polynesia. And Brando so found himself at home there after making the movie, he actually bought one of the 118 islands of French Polynesia named Tetiaroa. The movie is based on the true story of the Royal Navy ship, the HMS Bounty. And the ship in the late 1700s found itself passing through French Polynesia and made the mistake of stopping in Tahiti for a bit. A couple months. The crew basically hung out in Tahiti for those months in the late 1700s. And the captain of the ship, Lieutenant William Bly, that day pulled up anchor and he said, all right, gentlemen, tally-ho, time to go. But there was a little bit of a conflict. Life in Tahiti had grown on the crew a bit, understandably. The Garden of Eden is no longer on Earth, but in French Polynesia, it's pretty close. So on April 28, 1789, Lieutenant Fletcher Christian and several other ambitious chaps seized control of the ship and at gunpoint forced Captain Bly and 18 loyalists off the ship and into an open canoe to fend for themselves in the South Pacific. Mutiny on the bounty. Among other things, they said in effect 
to the former Captain Bly, who had been ousted. Sorry, Captain. We're not going back to rainy, cold England. And life on the island, the mango, the papaya trees, starfruit, calm 83-degree lagoons filled with fresh, delicious seafood had supplanted 52 and rainy degree England with bangers, mash, and potatoes, I reckon. Probably some of those guys had some Polynesian girlfriends as well, all of which motivated them to say, we're staying here. So they forced Captain Bly and the 18 off the ship, and the mutineers went back to the islands to settle into life. If you know the, the story, they were later, many of them, brought to justice. It took a while. Captain Bly and his posse in an open boat, glorified canoe, did make it back to England. It took a few years. But prior to a catastrophic defection, the throne did. A defection. And many of those were court-martialed, actually went back to the islands, found some of them, and took care of them. A catastrophic defection, the mutiny on the bounty. And in our passage this morning, it's an interesting one. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've been wanting to preach it for a long time. We see the Lord Jesus dealing also with a sort of defection. A defection far more serious, though, than a refusal to go back to rainy England for sunny Tahiti. Spiritual defection. Apostasy, as theologians have called it. If, if you know Christ, few things are more exciting than when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It's so exciting, in fact, that in Luke chapter 15, Jesus says that there is rejoicing, there is a, a feasting in heaven, as it were, over one person who gets saved. Similarly, someone who appeared or professed to follow Christ for a time, when they fall away, few things are more sorrowful. It would be far better just to die than that, than to defect from his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus addresses this text uh, in a profound way, and in doing so just gives us uh, a, a beautiful display of the sovereignty of God and the glory of Jesus Christ amidst the glory of salvation and the tragedy of defection. And this passage he instructs us, gives us hope. If, if you are regenerate this morning, this, is, this passage gives just such comfort how to, how to navigate the situations when people who seem to have followed Christ for a time and participated in Christian things and then just defect Commit apostasy, turn away. Oh, what a comfort this passage is. It is rich. We are not going to be able to turn over every stone there is in this passage, but I, I want to preach, preach it in one chunk because it's actually a sermon that Jesus preaches. 
And when Jesus starts talking about stuff like this, like defection and salvation, I want to listen. So would that follow along as I read John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, reading through the end of his sermon and the aftermath of it, verse 71. God's word says, John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They're saying, is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets and they shall, be ta- they shall all be taught of- by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world, which uh, the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up. On the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
This is the reading of the Word of God. So this is a, a sermon that the greatest preacher ever preached. It's a tricky one. It's a controversial one. The context is super important, of course. Broadly speaking, the context, John is the writer of the gospel, one of the apostles who was with Jesus daily for a couple of years. He writes later under the inspiration of the Spirit to inerrantly record what happened. In part, he's writing because he said, he's saying to us, in effect, I want you to see a couple things, that Christ is God, that he's God the Son, God in the flesh. I also want you to see, John is writing, that God is sovereign over all things. He, John wants to show us how big and great God is. That Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And if he's sovereign over one thing, like bread, weather, healing people with debilitating maladies, if he's sovereign over any one of those things, he's sovereign over everything. Not the least of which is who comes to faith in Christ and who is saved. You saw him mention that a number of times. Jesus likes that about himself. And he likes that about the Father. Sovereignty. That, of course, is inherent to the definition of God. If you're God, you're sovereign. John 6, more localized here. Jesus, of course, has performed that great miracle of feeding several thousands with bread and fish, uh, without a net, without a pole, without a line, without bait, without a yeast starter, without flour, without an oven. Then the crowd chases him and they try to forcefully make him king. And Jesus, interestingly, exits stage left, hikes up on a mountain by the Sea of Galilee and says, you're not making me king. He already is king for one thing. But he doesn't want to be made king because people got a free lunch. So he goes into a little seclusion. Meantime, the apostles, where's Jesus? What do he do? Maybe went back across the Sea of Galilee. They take the few-mile trek across the giant lake. In the middle of the night, it's storming like crazy. Jesus miraculously comes out, does another miracle, walking on the water, calms the storm, boom, they're back on shore. The people find him again and start, they, they resurrect the chit-chat about bread. And they start talking about Moses. Well, remember when Moses gave us the manna in the wilderness, Exodus 16 and following, right? When God's people, after they've been rescued out of Egypt, they, they, they experience a great miracle and redemption of God coming out of slavery and not a lot of food in the desert. So God makes this manna appear six days a week. They're thinking of that. Jesus says, no, you see, you need to be motivated more than your than something by your gut and your glands to worship me. I'm greater than, than bread. It does good for a while and fills a void as lunch does, but you still die. You need a bread from heaven. And they say, give us this bread, Lord. And so he tees it up into a sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is usually known as the best sermon of Jesus. I really like this one, though. This one is helpful. The Sermon in Capernaum, the Sermon on Sovereignty, whatever you want to call it. Again, I have to apologize ahead of time. We are not going to be able to scratch every itch that will arise from this text. Hopefully, we'll look at some of the main things, though, 
For our outline, we're going to see three points. I'll restate them. We're going to see the sovereignty of God and salvation. Number one. Number two, we're going to see the free invitation to salvation. And number three, the sovereignty of God despite defection. The sovereignty of God and salvation, the free invitation to salvation, and number three, the sovereignty of God despite and even over defection. Number one, the sovereignty of God in salvation, verse 35 to 50. So they say, give us this bread, Lord. Always give it to us. Verse 34, verse 35, he says to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me is never going to thirst. I remember years ago, early on in ministry, I was meeting with a young man who didn't know Christ. We had been chatting, kind of playing some tennis in the ring a little bit, going back and forth. And after several months, one day he calls me. He said, I read this passage, John 35 and following, and I get it now. The Lord is my Savior. And he got saved from this passage and never hungered again. Jesus is the bread of life. He doesn't mean you'll never need lunch again, but he means that void in the soul that you're born with, that everybody's born with, that's satiated only by Jesus. Not by a hobby, not by a relationship, not by finally moving or traveling to the right place, a certain status. That hole, that gap, that abyss is filled by Jesus. Not everyone likes that, though. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So not everyone is interested in Christ. Many reject. Why is that? Is that because, well, there are many paths up to the top of the mountain and some people just have different spiritual palates. Others prefer one way up the mountain. Others prefer another. And it's all sort of fine and dandy. That is absolutely not why. That may be the situation why some people like fish, some like steak, some like veggies. But when it comes to salvation, there's a much deeper thing going on that Jesus is going to clue us into as he says, take your eyes off the ground and the earth and I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you the throne room of heaven which explains why this is. So here's the controversy, here's the context. The context of what is happening in John 6, especially verse 37 through 71 is rejection, salvation, and defection. So Christ wants his disciples then and now to understand what is really happening, what's actually, what's ultimately happening when someone does come to faith and when someone doesn't and when someone seems to for a while and then they quote unquote lose their faith or they fall away. Lots of variables there. Jesus is opening the door to the most important one. It's important that we take his words at face value. And so here's what he says in verse 37. He doesn't want to talk a lot about bread anymore. He'll go back to it a little bit, but not for bread's sake. But something else we'll look at in a sec. Look at verse 37. All. Why does he say this? In the midst of people rejecting him. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So again, the context, salvation, defection. And he's taking us up to the throne room of God. Jesus says this, look, God, God the Father has given me some people. 
and those he has given me, all of them, they will all come to me. Of course, this presupposes that God the Father, if he gives, he owns, he owns everybody in the universe, those who have and have not heard about him. He is sovereign. This presupposes highest sovereignty, highest power, highest supremacy. And God the Father, as a creator of humans, then can do with them what they, he wishes. And he wishes to take some of them, save them motivated by his love and his compassion and his grace. If you were to take one word and just paint it across these words from verse 37 to 44, and again in verse 65, it would be grace. Great blessing from God when we don't deserve it and can't do anything to earn it or get it. Grace. So he says, Jesus says, I want you to understand something. God the Father has given me a chunk of the human race. And all those he has given me, they're all coming to me. This is salvation talk. And Jesus seems to say this that like it happened in the past. Verse 39, all that he has given me, he has given me. I'm going to lose nothing. So it seems to say in the past, God the Father has given people to me. In fact, in Ephesians 1, as we read in our public reading, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, you can look at it later, says that God has actually given, God the Father has given these people in eternity past, before creation. Moved by his love, he gave Jesus. So, so if you give something to someone, it's like a gift. God the Father has given people as a loved gift to Jesus. And consequently, all of them, verse 37 is telling us, Jesus says, they'll come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll never cast out. Jesus says, anyone comes to me, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, wait a second, you have the sins of your earlier days are too huge, too catastrophic. Others can come to me, but you can't. Nothing like that. Everybody who comes to me, regardless of sins, regardless of background, Jesus says, I'm not going to cast him out. I will receive him. And the reason they will come to him, Jesus says, apparently in verse 37, is because the Father gives them to me and they'll come to me. So he's saying, in effect, Jesus is saying, you need to know something about salvation. It's a done deal. God the Father gave me everyone who will ever be saved, and every single one of them is coming. If God the Father gave Jesus a billion people, it's not 998 million that are coming. It's a billion. Because God is sovereign. And, and God is that competent, isn't he? So the certainty of souls, that souls will be saved, is not in human tactics. Jesus does not speak about human methods. He speaks in terms of divine sovereignty, that there are people who are love gifts that the Father has given me, and that ensures salvation. The one who comes to me, I won't cast out. What a compassionate Savior, Lord, he is. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
verse 38. He says this, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. I've come from heaven, by the way, the claim of deity. I haven't come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is the will of him who sent you, Jesus? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he, God the Father, has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Yes. People often ask, what's God's will? Here it is in part, that his love gifts, his love gifts to Jesus, the elect, as theologians over the centuries have called them, that Christ would redeem them and keep them and not one of them will fall away. When he says, I will, I will raise them up on the last day, that's terminology of keeping they're not falling away. He's keeping them. Hence, they are ri- risen up on the last day. They're resurrected, in other words, when Christ comes back to eternal bl- bliss and glory. If he raises them on the last day, that means those who are the love gifts from the Father, he didn't lose any of them. This is the will of the Father for Jesus to do that. And Jesus I personally am not, but Jesus is really good at doing the Father's will. John eight twenty nine, Jesus said, I only do what pleases the Father. If you or I said that, you know, we'd be liars. He's really good at doing the Father's will, which means when it comes to keeping those love gifts, souls that were gifted to him before eternity, he's not losing them because he's sovereign. He's the sovereign Lord and no one can take them out of his hand as he'll later say in John 10, 28 to 30. That's a pillow for the soul. Now again, this is response. The response to controversy Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is basically saying the same thing as verse 37 and 39, except there's belief now because those who are given to Christ from the Father, this isn't like robotic, this isn't puppeteering, there is belief involved. They see, they believe. Verse 41 then. Before verse 41, let's say this. Just to sum up Jesus' words in verse 37 to 40, we can say this. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is because in time past, eternity past, God the Father gave them as a gift to Jesus such that Jesus redeems them and keeps them and they will never fall away because they'll be risen up on the last day. And they persevere because Jesus keeps them and he's good at doing the Father's will. Verse 41 then. Therefore, and this, these are conservative people, professing religious who knew the Bible. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They're saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? We know him. He can't be God. He can't be sovereign. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said, stop grumbling among yourselves. Verse 44, 
Notice this divine response to grumbling. Notice how he responds. John 6.44 is quoted a lot. I think the controversy is super important. Verse 44, stop grumbling among yourselves. Verse 43, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So in response to the grumbling about him and people kind of teetering in the balance here, he goes right back to the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation. The original Greek has the idea of no one is capable of coming to me in salvation is the idea unless the father who sent me draws him. And that Greek word for draw was used in ancient times. Of, it was a fishing term. A fishing term at times. Throwing a net, grabbing the fish. We're going this way. Jesus says, not a single person has the ability, the power to come to me. And thankfully, I, I am so glad. Aren't you so glad that verse 644 Verse 44, chapter 6, has an unless. Because unless there's an unless there, nobody can come to Christ. Romans 1.18 to 3.20, we've studied it. We're fallen. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we're dead in our sins. Later in Romans, Romans 8, 5 and following, we're not able, we're not desiring nor able to do the will of God. And so Jesus is right. No one is able to come to him. But there's an unless there, beloved. Unless. Unless what? Unless, well, unless someone, God, looks down the sands of time and sees that so-and-so is pretty virtuous and went to lots of Sunday school and lots of classes and knew a lot of Bible and had a big study Bible and he was able. None of that. We're dead in sin. The unless is that the Father who sent me nets him up and pulls him in. What a great God we have. Isn't he a great, loving God? You say, does this violate people's will? Yes and no. God doesn't bring people against their will, but with their will. But he has to wake their will up. This is what regeneration in the new birth is, or to be born again. That Christ teaches in John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and on and on and on. And I praise God that he violated my will. When, when for too many decades, I had, by my will, been going against the will of God. And I loved my sin, and I was in darkness, and wherever God was, I wanted to go the other way. And so it is, the scriptures teach us, especially in Romans 3, 10 to 19, so it is of everyone prior to salvation. It's so loving of God to violate my will and to draw me in. That unless has love and grace written all over it. Theologians have called this verse what's called the, the effectual call. The effectual call. That's when one of the love gifts that God the Father gave to the Son is born in time, grows up, and through whatever means and circumstances that God ordains, a loving friend sharing the gospel, a co-worker who, who is burdened for a fellow employee and sees their destructive life, sees they don't know Christ, shares the gospel, and God draws them in. 
at the appointed time because they are one of the love gifts. This is so, and this makes perfect sense because everything about God, Christ, and scripture and salvation is against man's natural inclination and human sensibilities. It it makes no sense that anybody would come to faith in Christ. Let's Let's just say that out loud and realize that. It makes zero sense. The natural inclination of humanity is to exalt self. But in salvation and coming to Christ, it's all about exalting someone else than you. And lowering yourself. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's not in the fabric of humanity. Watch TV for five seconds. This is supernatural. Anti-natural. Humanity naturally seeks to boast in self, promote self. But in salvation, the boasting and promotion and the pride of humanity is, is crushed like an empty pop can under an 18-wheeler. The most loving thing God does in salvation is crush your pride, without which you're not saved. You can't be saved. You have a new Lord who sits on the throne of your heart. Praise him. Verse 45, it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me, in other words, once you're saved, you're going, to be, you're going to be learning. The Spirit's going to be teaching you. But this exclusive statement, notice he says, everybody who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, he's saying this. The way you know that a person savingly knows God is they go to Jesus. There are people and faiths around the world and people say, well, they know God in their way and they pursue God in another way. Jesus, Jesus just slashes that idea and says, nope. The litmus test for that, that a person actually savingly knows God is they embracingly and savingly come to faith in Jesus. Whew. That's exclusive. And it's the truth. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He's seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Again, Jesus does not throw out human responsibility despite the fact, the absolute fact of God's sovereignty and salvation. This is what theologians have called divine compatibilism. Divine compatibilism. God is sovereign. He gave the love gifts to Jesus in eternity past, not because he saw what would happen, because he decrees what will happen. And then his humans that he owns, the that he loves, they then put faith. They have to believe. Hence why Jesus is saying belief. And of course, it's the latter that causes the former, isn't it? John 6.44 nails that forever, settles it forever. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation, beloved. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimateness of Christianity. This is what is happening. We should close the doors of every church, ours included, and just say, forget this, and and go sell hot dogs or something, if this isn't true, if God is not sovereign in salvation, 
nobody can be saved. God's sovereignty ensures that, that people will be saved. Otherwise, we're dead. And if you reject this, you're in a catastrophic position because human depravity, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Romans 3, 10 to 20 to 19, being dead in sin is insurmountable by any other human tactic. You know, a, a preacher who's really cool and is funny and has tattoos, uh, smoke machines in the worship service, whatever it might be, human depravity is insurmountable by any effort Thus, pre preventing and forbidding salvation absolutely unless something stronger than human depravity overcomes human depravity. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in verse 37 to 40. The Father has given me these love gifts and they're coming to me. You don't know when, I do. The Father will draw them, they're coming. Ah, oh, finally we have something. That, can, that overcome the otherwise insurmountable force of human depravity such that people can get saved. Therefore, election ensures the success of evangelism without which there's zero hope. Does this mean we're robots? Of course not. Believe, he's saying, over and over and over and over again. Again, I know this might raise a lot of very good questions. Can't possibly address them all in one sermon. I'd point you to two excellent books that are very biblically based and discuss this and repercussions. J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. Excellent, really helpful to kind of get into some of the hmm implications. So why should Christians evangelize if God the Father has already given to Christ? We flip that and we understand that, ah, because God the Father has given souls to Christ in an eternity past, people will be saved. The otherwise insurmountable force of depravity will be overcome. Therefore, evangelism will be successful. And therefore, we evangelize because of John 6.37 and 6.44 and so on. If you look in history, the greatest missionaries, those from the London Missionary Society, William Carey, John Patton, they, were, they believed this doctrine. And because of this doctrine, they went to cannibalistic islands in the South Pacific and other places and saw God save people. This is grace. If we reject this, we can no longer say salvation is of grace. Nor can we say salvation is to the glory of God. Because if salvation hinges on the will of man or the decision of man, then we have to say, well, okay, Salvation is like 90% the grace of God and 10% man. The glory of God is 90% glory. 90% of glory goes to God in salvation. But the other like 10-ish percent goes to man because he's able to kind of decide. And we reject that because the Bible says all glory goes to God. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There's a very important implication here. An implication of the fact that God the Father has given to Christ these love gifts. Something we need to think about super carefully, especially just in mundane local church life. As we're all, local church is super imperfect. Something very important to think about. Notice, okay, controversy. People saying, I'm not having this. I'm turning away from Jesus. We'll see many people defect. And notice carefully how Jesus responds 
to a lot of people rejecting and defecting. Notice how he responds. Notice how he doesn't respond. Notice that Jesus doesn't say in verse 37, okay, ah, man, maybe we should make church more entertaining. Maybe we should hire a comedian or, you know, maybe the ushers should wear matching sweatshirts and give out, you know, free Slurpee coupons to 7-Eleven at the door. Or we should just like say stuff that people like and not say anything that's uncomfortable and, and just make it entertainment. That's what we need to do. I think it's very interesting that the Lord Jesus doesn't say anything like that in response to so many people rejecting him. Do you find that interesting? I do too. He starts talking about election. And that's what we need to also think about. God is sovereign. And that explains it. Because when God the Father gave his love gifts to the Son, they're all coming. They're all coming. And your imperfection and my greater imperfection isn't going to be some obstacle in front of souls where it's like, oh man, you're too imperfect. God the Father thinking, I can't get this love gift over to Jesus now. I don't know what I'm going to do. That doesn't happen. Our imperfection glorifies God even more and shows him, oh yes, salvation is of grace and to the glory of God. What a helpful implication. What, what helpful instruction Jesus gives. The doctrine of sovereign election is what perhaps informs most the methods of local church life, without which we are erring and we're differing from the way Jesus does it, aren't we? Jesus doesn't say, let's start painting up the synagogue, get a cooler building, this and that, you know, like fish decorations on the wall, people in Capernaum like fish. God's sovereignty. This is, I mean, this is just about, do we believe God? Do we believe his word? Do we trust God? Number two, however, the free invitation. And I apologize, we've got to move a little quickly. The free invitation to salvation. Number one, the sovereignty of God in salvation. Number two, the free invitation to salvation. Verse 49 and 59. This is a, a controversial passage. This section as well, he says, in the same sermon, um, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And understandably, they start, they get a little worked up and say, well, how, uh, he's not talking about cannibalism, is he? Of course, he's not. What's he saying here? Well, when he says, end of verse 51, this clues us in. It's, it's sort of like John 3.16 talk, the end of verse 51. The bread which I will give, God so loved the world that he gave, for the life, eternal life, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, my flesh. So he says, the bread 
And this clues us in to what all this eating of my body, drinking my blood, let's not get lost in that. Giving my flesh for life for the world is really what tells us what's happening here. He's talking about his death on the cross. His flesh or his body is what gives life. In other words, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God and we've all violated in some way or some shape or form his good moral standards and commands. We've sinned. We find ourselves condemned. We can't undo this problem on our own. God has sent the Savior motivated by his compassion for sinners. And this Savior, the Lord Jesus, God become man, gives his flesh or his body to take care of our guilt. How does that happen? A person must substitute for a person. God said in the beginning, Genesis 2.17, if you sin, you die. And, and so Jesus comes as our substitute such that when he goes to the cross, he has a perfect track record of obedience to the Father and to the commands. And so his body hangs there, a real body, his flesh, he says. And Jesus is treated as if he committed all of the sins of those who would ever be forgiven. That's how he gives life. It's substitution. He's a substitute atoning, taking away atoning, sacrifice for sins. And this is what he's saying here. My coming death on the cross, it's my body, the bread that gives life to the world. But then, he doesn't stop there. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, you must eat. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh drinks my blood. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh drinks my blood. What He'll have, he'll have life, verse 56, 56 says. Abides in me, you'll have life. Verse 54, you'll have eternal life if you eat my flesh. So whatever eating the flesh and drinking the blood means, if you look at the outcome of it, the outcome is eternal life. So therefore, we know that eternal life is received by faith in Christ, trusting in Christ. So therefore, eating the his body, drinking his blood, whatever is going on there, it's, it means faith in Christ. Why does he use this term, eating my, 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 my flesh, drinking my blood? Because, because in this realm of defecting and people appearing to walk with Christ for a while, what can happen? They have what kind of a belief? A superficial belief, right? Mental assent. Intellectual affirmation, sure, I believe that. I, I, I'm saved. But it's very strategic in this context for him of, of people falling away who never had a true belief to use the metaphor of eating and drinking because it means full appropriation. Like taking in food, it becomes a part of you. Full embracing. The people who commit apostasy and defect, though it was hard to see for a while, they, they had a superficial belief that wasn't, as it were metaphorically, eating and drinking and taking Christ all the way in by faith. He's mine, I'm his. Eating and drinking. That's what's happening here. And so this is a free invitation to not make the mistake of those who are falling away by having a mere mental assent that isn't uh, appropriation and submission to his lordship, which is also by faith is only by faith. This is the free invitation 
under the sovereignty of God. Number three. Number three. The sovereignty of God despite defection. Number three, the the sovereignty of God despite and over defection. The sovereignty of God despite and over defection, verse 60 to 71. So there was the sermon, the inability of man to come to faith on his own, the necessity of God to elect and draw. So what's the response to the sermon? Look at verse 60. Therefore, Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? People didn't always like Jesus' preaching. The Greek word there translated difficult, it means harsh. This is a harsh statement. Who Who can endure this? Now, How will Jesus respond to people who say, your preaching is harsh? Look what he says. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Stumble, the the word means to offend in Greek. Does this offend you, he says? Verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's interesting that instead of saying, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry you were offended. I, 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 shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have offended you. I, I, I take it back. Uh, he, he, he doubles down on it and says something equally, if not more hard and exclusive. Where he says in verse 62, what if you see me rise back up to heaven? very important that the Jesus that we believe in is the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of the quote-unquote bestseller shelves. This Jesus in the scriptures is quite a bit different than the Jesus we see on some unfortunate TV shows and other things that are merely manufactured from the mind of man. He is a great, loving Sovereign king. Verse 63, then he makes this interesting statement, is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. Why does he say that in response to people who are going to defect? Most of them who commit apostasy and said, we're done with you. Why does he say it is the spirit who gives life? My words are spirit And life. This is why he says it. Because he's sticking on the theme that he's been talking about the whole time of the sovereignty of God and salvation and defection. He's saying the Bible is the litmus test of your salvation. How you respond to the Bible says, without exception, if you're saved or not. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives that life from the words of the Bible. You reject and do not remain under biblical teaching. You do not have the spirit. You evidence that you're not saved. It is only the spirit combined with the word of God that can impart spiritual life. He's a great king and a great Lord. 
He said the flesh profits nothing. In other words, the flesh, the mere strength of man, you can't fake being a disciple. Truly, you can't fake it. These words I've spoken are spirit and life. So, the words of Scripture then are essential to, to show, to be preached and to be taught, and, and they will show where a person is. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, the word of God will, will cut, it will show who's Who's, who's a disciple for real? Who's not? Who's saved? Who's not? Who's received the Spirit? Who hasn't? The Word of God preached will sift, is what he's saying here. And most people will not be saved, hence what he says, right? The, 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 the gate is, is broad, the way is wide to damnation. The gate to salvation, though, Matthew chapter 7, is very narrow. Most people aren't going to be saved. And God has ordained it that way. It shows that spiritual life can't come from us. Verse 64, there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, the ones that are peeling off. What a picture. You don't peel off, you don't endure under the word. Jesus says, you still need to be saved. It's as clear as day, without exception. And verse 65 again, he says, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Doubles down. The reason people defect, it hasn't been granted to them from the Father. And they're guilty of rejecting Christ with their own will. As a result of this, look at verse 66. Many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. Many, not few. What a scene. Many peel off. The seats in the pews get emptied. I mean, if that's going to happen to Jesus, that's a foretaste of what's going to happen in the true church, isn't it? Only when the word is preached. When the word is muddied, you don't have the sifter to show, and it's unloving because it doesn't discern. People can't discern who's saved and who still needs to be saved. So, verse 67 Jesus looks at the 12, which means that probably everybody but the 12 had peeled off. Small little group remaining. He says, you don't want to go, do you? You guys want to defect as well? And then you see the power of God. And Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Meaning the spirit has given them life such that when the word is faithfully unpacked, they're a magnet. They keep coming. They don't peel off. He says, we must have the word. And it is only the spirit who's provided that life by the previously love gifting by the father to the son. We've believed, verse 69, and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil? He's not talking about the choosing of election because he already said in verse 37, he loses none. This is the choosing of the apostles. It was even ordained that one of them 
would defect. Verse 71, he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, is going to betray him. F.F. Bruce says of those who defected what they wanted, he, Jesus, would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. When they're offended, he doubles down and speaks about even harder things. And he does that to show that if you are enduring in the faith, it is because you have been given an eternity past as a loved gift by the Father to the Son and the Holy Spirit has come into your heart by no doing of your own and giving you a faith that can never perish. And so therefore, this passage for the elect, for the redeemed, is great encouragement. It absolutely, like a cheese grater on a wound, chafes on the unregenerate and the defector. But on you, the people of God, you say with Peter, where else are we going to go? So today, we don't have the Lord physically with us. We have his word empowered by the spirit that is eternal life. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for this hope. Thank you that we don't need to wonder and look about in anxiousness when people defect and when people hate your word or when people for a time who seem to endure eventually peel off as many did here in this passage. Thank you that we don't have to worry. We just keep preaching your word, studying your word, ministering to your word, and your word will clarify where people are. And it is by your grace, not our merit. May many people come to Christ. May your elect, Father, may your love gifts to Christ present here at Cornerstone be so encouraged and resting in your sovereignty and your glory this week and beyond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.